the ones who care about the adoption of the ecosystem is the L1 itself. And the projects who should be responsible for the adoption through UX care about presenting their technological innovation to L1. So in the end, nobody actually reaching out to the user. That was Max from Magic Powered. I really enjoyed today's episode because Max and Ravi take a no-nonsense approach to building. The episode turned out to be a masterclass in building products and developing world-class user experiences, which is something that we really truly need if we want to achieve our mantra of getting 1 billion people on chain, but that very few people are talking about and even less are doing the work. Max is a very busy person, so he was only able to join us for the first 45 minutes of the episode. But fear not, the rant keep on going with Ravi. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Without further ado, let's jump in. Enjoy! Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, ABB. Today, we have a two-for-one I've got with me Max and Ravi from Magic Powered. Magic Powered is a branding, design, and development agency that many of you may not have heard, but they're actually behind some of the most powerful applications across the near ecosystem, and they bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Welcome, Max and Ravi. Thanks for having us. Thank you. No worries. Thanks so much for responding to my tweet. I'm pretty sure it was just a gif <laughs> and be like, can someone come on board? I love a proactive approach, especially because this podcast was born out of the initial Silicon Craftsman Guild, which was focused on product and user experience. And I feel like you guys are doing really excellent work in the space. So why don't you just start telling us a little bit about what your current role is and what Magic Powered does? One, one kind of caveat to how you used us. We don't really follow the agency model. We're more of a collective. And our initial founding credo, if you will, is working without managers. It was very intentional that we didn't really want to have the typical structure or introducing managers into the picture. We didn't really see the value. It's a loosely based collective. It's not very hierarchical. But when we do take a project, we do have form a team and then, then we kind of go into the more traditional hierarchical structure of reporting and decision. It seems to be so far the most efficient way to decentralize and centralize Magic Power, and it makes correct me because I wasn't really around in the early days, but Magic Power was founded six years ago as way to really tap into the high quality talent that was available in Ukraine. And there were a couple of our founders who needed some products built. So they were like, this is a way to get products built and to develop this massive talent because that was kind of the central focus. We have this score of people that work with us more or less full time and then a larger ecosystem of people, varied skill sets from 3D modeling to data science, et cetera we pull in based on projects. If a project requires us to build up, you know, particularly complex economics, you know, partners that come in and help us model them, they'll be partners who can come in 
do more niche things. So that was, that was kind of the origin of the origin. And then, you know, as happens with these things, things kind of wound down about three or four years ago. And then two years ago, I was working on a project for a client with Matt. So I was on the other side of the, of, of the fence and Max and I worked together for the better part of three months. And at the end, he was like, you know, why don't you jump on board and let's actually actively build this out from smaller kind of current status to a legit player on the web through space. So I came on board and one of the reasons why I did come on board was because I was not really in crypto at that point. I was doing open source development as ops, you know, capabilities for, for common stack and we found that while the idea of Web3 was fantastic, the decentralization, et cetera, neither the tools nor the mindset in the space really supported that overall vision. And as, you know, people focused on user experience and, you know, just high quality design with efficient output, it really seemed like we should not necessarily start a Web3 project, but actually support the building of tools to enable this ecosystem that we envision would occur, whatever, five, seven, ten, right? It actually helped shape the space, not as a builder of a project, but as the builder of tools. Thanks. And that's really been our focus for the last two years. We entered the near ecosystem actually as the people that did the branding for the Sputnik protocol and which that kind of evolved into, you know, Astro and yeah, it just got really, really deep into the space. There's so much to unpack there, but just to give people some context about Sputnik, because time goes by really, really fast, but just mentioning Sputnik, it immediately <laughs> highlights to me how far we go and that the reference may be lost on most members of the ecosystem, because I would but say that most have been in the last six months. Mm-hmm. So Sputnik was essentially the very first version of what AstroDAO is now. As I understand it, it is actually still the same smart contract that powers the Sputnik and Astro. Well, it, it has evolved significantly since, but th- there was a replacement of the of the UI. So the very first version of Sputnik was super raw. I mean, it looked like you were in like in the nineties Windows, dark internet. It was it's kind of clunky, but I liked it because it was functional. And then we had a very beautiful website, which captured that, you know, like space vibe. And AstroDAO later extended that focus in UX and design to the whole user journey for DAOs. One thing that I really like is that, as I understand it, you guys were organized as a loose collective from the early days, even before you started working in Web3. And I like it because I can start to see those narratives or patterns starting to interweave there is something about not having fixed relationships within the company that may stifle innovation or just create tension being very compelling and similar to the Web3 world and the way that people structure themselves. I'd be really curious to know how you guys got into crypto independently. Was it through the pure services provision or something else drew you in and then you brought in your professional expertise? We started to build the expertise at early as 2016. It was the first time when we actually built an NFT marketplace for one of our. It's true. It was a means to fund the project. And the artworks was really, really something. So I remember this collection of 
there was like a bits of actual code of the Bitcoin underneath the picture, like, you know, blended it in and it was like a history of bugs and there, there is a collection for Ethereum as well. So, and then, you know, something that's the early crypto nerds would get, I don't even know if it flew up, but this was our first experience of working with early wallets and ETH basically. Sorry. Uh, which year was it? Steve. I don't know. Oh, what? 2016, 2017. Yeah, I don't know. So very, very early days. That's amazing. Yeah. This this is pre, pre go 721. Nobody yet. Are those NFTs still going around? Because I, I feel like I want one. Like that is real OG shit. <laughs> and then we were an agency. We were doing some DAGs, some websites, and some social media platforms. Yeah. Like we actually always had these big projects and smaller ones. On, on our plate. So, and somehow we ended up in this way of having more and more and more inquiries from the web free space. So it started with some um, landing pages. We always were focused on the consistency of the design. So that suits a lot to LP reporting decks. So we had a lot of NDAs with uh, early crypto funds to basically help them have their reporting decks very nice and clean and crispy. And when you work on those numbers for like OG crypto funds, y y you eventually you get in really deep within the industry. So you, you see what's happening and the next and next clients, you're able to capitalize on that expertise a bit. So you basically giving some consultancy along providing the service. So I guess this is the way we build the reputation in this space slowly, you know, step by step. I also think the thing that that's really going to help us out along the way is that all of us are, or at least the initial group, they are all polyglot, the polymaths. Maths is a lawyer, you know, and the massive real estate development company for a while. Our BA is a general surgeon who does endoscopic surgeries. Our lead designer was an English teacher. I used to design renewable energy systems. So we are just the, the, the perspective is not domain specific. It never has been. It's always, it's always been very process specific quality control, process driven reporting, things like that. So because of that, we've also had a lot of contacts that uh, developed a lot of deep expertise before coming to the web three space. So our partners, for example, you know, Buck Science, they're, they're basically kind of leading the modeling, you know, industry standard in, in tokenomics. We have founders who want part of participating in the early coin, who founded coin you know, so there's a lot of, lot of kind of external deep expertise that were applied to the space that we all felt almost like a kinship with. And, and I think that, that kind of helped us. So for example, Max and I, we were part of the original working group for local engineering, early deep years ago when things were still like that word didn't really exist. It was developed. So yeah, we've done, a, we've done a lot of like interesting stuff really early on when, yeah. So the second part of the question, to be honest, I'm, I'm thinking of that right now. How do we operate within this fluid, decentralized way? And it feels pretty natural from where I stand because the nature of the software business in, in here in Ukraine, most of you usually have like an onshore US entity and then you 
I have a net of contractors from around the world. It's already in a Web2 legal space. It's already decentralized enough. We just mirror this actual real life thing into the Web3. Because of that, it feels very natural. And to the point why we don't use managers, I, back in the days, I was often like invited to the data interviews and there was always some person who, you know, claimed to be a senior something. And then gets on the team and starts like, you know, slamming us with, oh, you don't have processes, you don't have this, like how can you work? And you know, for anyone who's been, who's worked with the decentralized communities in general, well, this chaos sometimes, I figured there is a very easy definition of if the person is senior enough or not. In my opinion, the true senior person can work without any process as efficient as he would put with the processes. It's hard to explain, but when you are not capable of performing and delivering without like work, things that you not supervision, that okay, okay. Work, kind of mining. Yeah. All right, but I can help you explain it. Where are all geniuses? And I'll tell you what, I feel exactly the same as you and I've realized that there's like high bandwidth people. And they can make sense of the mess in their head. And their head is an actual neural network whereby things are constantly reshuffling. And the mess is almost like it frees you up. You're responding yep. in real time. And sometimes it may seem like you're lazy and mediocre. Sometimes in reality, you just knew that that was not a priority. And you let it slide and you focus on what really matters. And before you know it, in two weeks, no one gives a crap about that one thing. By contrast, yeah. and I have a lot of friends now that are like consultants, <laughs> I get really frustrated by people that they spend so much time on this documentation and roadmap and decks, and they can spend three months implementing crap that everyone knows is not relevant, but whatever, you know, the stakeholders and somebody else is paying and it doesn't matter if it works or not, there's too much attention to process and billing and not much ownership or passion about what you're actually delivering. So I think like there needs to be a sweet spot somewhere. There can definitely be processes that you leverage, but yes, my main takeaway is we are geniuses and we should be proud of it. <laughs> you can actually clearly see this kind of influence from about two huge outsource agencies and companies where it was all about the processes. And crypto nerds and enthusiasts from the other side, right? Who is like a keyboard warrior. I will do everything myself, cut the crap and stuff like this. So I guess part of why we fit in into the crypto party is because we're somewhere in this sweet spot. Like you, you can engage <laughs> us as the you know traditional business from one hand. You can have a contract, you can call us out. But at the same time, we don't need to have a very detailed project requirement, document, or something. Right. So we kind of used to the space from the early. That is a really, really good point. And I actually wrote it on my very unstructured with no process, a document that I had <laughs> with topics for this conversation. I really like two things that we've mentioned so far. The first one is the breadth of experience of the team. I like that you all can bring in a different worldview and experience from many different areas. It does shape the way that your brain works. By the way, Max, I guess that we have one thing in common. I was also a lawyer in a previous life. And okay. the second thing that I don't want to brag to, but you know, we've already established we're geniuses, so we might as well just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but the second thing that draws my attention is that 
on the description, and I believe earlier in the episode, you mentioned that the Magic Powered Collective does branding, design, and development work. And the reason why I like those two components, the breadth of experience, adult professionals, and distinguishing between those separate lines of work is because I feel like most people in crypto are either very, very young, so they don't really have much career or experience outside of Web3. Or in delivery at all. Or in anything, really. You're skewed sideways, like in both ways. You don't have the real world experience and you don't really... Like the Web3, let's call them less than ideal ways, may actually be normal for you. But the second component is there are very few projects that actually treat branding, their user experience design and user interface design and their development work separate. I feel like most projects are still in like the very raw technical. So you have engineers, branding is an afterthought. Sometimes they try to outsource it and there's just many stories. So maybe if you could just give us a quick overview about how you guys approach work, as in how would you describe what each one of those area entails? And to Max's last point, what stage of development would a project normally come to you? If somebody comes to you and they have a product, but no branding or, or, or you know, a product, but horrific user experience, like it, how would you normally work at it? Had, all things happened to us. All things happened. Yeah, six years. <laughs> Starting from a, an actual tissue with some markings on it and up to like very, very detailed notion with every single bit described and very strict, you know, required, follow the rules. So the way we, we try to structure it is we have like those two major phases of the project creation, right? The first one is the subjective phase where you want to be, when you're basically doing the ideation, you do like brainstorms, you're trying to figure out the user journeys and general UX along with UI wireframes or something, if it's possible. So you want to keep everything that can be subjective to a person to that phase. At some point when you do the decision, you validate it and fix it in stone. You have the second phase. The second phase is basically development in fast iteration and delivery. The best way to, for developers to perform the cheaper and the fasters at the most quality is to not interfere with them and to not change anything along the way. A lot of people, a lot of developers can relate. You're not even finished doing this one. The project manager comes, okay, we have a change of priorities. So we're trying to do this, fix it. And then do that. And that's why remote working works really well, because if the developers are working on a on-site and the product manager comes and tells them there's a change, there would be a lot more voters. <laughs> yeah. So but a lot of violence, HR gets involved. It's no, no, no good. No good. More complicated. Our designers are trying to keep the white angle of so have more of an insight to the marketing, to the project KPIs and stuff like this, to be able to deliver UX to benefit the project adoption and other KPIs and for users of that project to be able to achieve their goals. And developers are, you know, being developers, they, they focus on fancy technical stuff. And sometimes even people just need to understand that those people have different types of passion, not even differently, 
the actual different types of passion. They can be passionate about pulling out some really complicated technical solution and they probably won't be, you know, appreciating your UX kind of conjecture. So you need to have specifically trained people that do the business logic of the application and be on par with the designers product tones and at the same time capable of taking this and producing an actual requirements as precise as possible, objective as possible for developers. So we call those people business analysts. Like, I don't know, they are not actual business analysts, but it's a hybrid role as much as any role of magic art. But yeah, they go as BAs in here, but I would say they are designers and devs at the same time of it. So, and we call this phase, a transition phase between, you know, subjective and objective one. And then it's basically up to a team lead to meet the deadlines that they promised themselves and stuff like this. And this is it pretty much. I, I really like it because I feel like as much as we've disparaged processes, it's a really good framework in the sense that I feel like a lot of people skip every stage one, which is fundamental. I would describe it as the meeting of the minds. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that what is in their head, their assumptions, their perceptions, their worldviews are shared by everyone. So when we communicate, especially when it comes to product, like what is it meant to be doing, et cetera, there can be a lot of mismatch. And that, as, as you've mentioned, needs to be captured really well by business analysts. And I like that, you know, design thinking, et cetera, it gives you a lot of tools to enable people to really lay down what they actually mean and really prompt them to think about perhaps things that they hadn't thought about before. I also like the second stage and just acknowledging the way that developers work. You need to have realistic expectations about what they do. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a meetup here in Melbourne with the chief technical officer for Estonia. Estonia at the time and most likely to this day it's the only country in the world that the government has a chief technical officer. And it was fascinating. Like it's a very small country. It moves very fast. They are very tech focused. They see that as their ticket to modernize into the 21st century. And he says something very similar. He's like, look, if you're building a bridge, once the decision to build the bridge has been made, once the budget has been approved, once you determine the very general specifics, like where is the bridge going to? The politicians or the, whoever approved the budget, they can't be on site telling the engineers, oh, you know, make the bridge, you know, whatever, taller or lower or, or, or make it with this concrete instead. Like there needs to be a very clear differentiation in roles and acknowledging that when the engineers take over, that is their domain of expertise and you have to trust them and empower them. So I, I like the full stack approach that you guys have. Honestly, really speaks to it works the, the other way around as well about the designers. If you think of it, a lot of the web two competition lies within the UX domain. So basically the technology, there are a lot of toolkits and people that are building kind of software to be either a painkiller or an enter entertainer and stuff like this. And it's mostly about the user experience. In a Web3 space, if you, the, the user experience people invited when the smart contract system is already built, for example. 
So you, you see, even like back in the days, even published an article about that. From a history of the space, the first OG Sanford enthusiasts, they are very technical. And they influence a lot till this days to the product owners, right? So, okay, I came up with this idea of, I want to do this, you know, AMM that way. Yeah. I will have this technical perk for it and stuff like this. And then they invite the designer and tell him what to do. And because of that, a lot of UX solutions just absent in the space. Even till this day, people usually mistake a high quality UI to UX. A simple experience for you to play was if you will ask a person to define the user experience, it will instantly give you that the product should be easy to use, comprehensive, you know, friendly and stuff like this. But if you will think of it, that's just a proper use of a proper high quality UI. You know, user interaction, user interfaces. On user experience is more something like more abstract matter where it's wider. You need to dive deeper into the, what is the business KPIs? What, what we're trying to achieve? What we're trying to design the experience to be like so the user will, by getting his goal, help us to achieve our goal. So this is UX designers, UX engineer more, more or less. And we need to be using the business development, marketing, how you advertise. There's a lot of implicit and explicit messaging involved. And in those cases, I'm acting as the UX person at Magic Power. My usual job is to go take a look at what UI designers do give them some comments about the narrative, about the order of things, maybe some highlights about it. my assumption, how user cognition will work, but because basically I mostly talk to the people, talk to the users and the product owners to understand as much as possible to help them out instead of just, you know, going, taking an open source UI kit, if arranging things nicely. And, and Max, to, to give an example within the space, she, when we first started working with Astro, the Design was developed by external another team that they were they're very good at creating these design these UX patterns a good UI for web for web two and they were using you know industry standard design thing user interface and things like they created this design which which by all metrics was was really good except that they had little or no understanding of what the tech was capable of doing. So when we came into, we stepped in to update the UI plus actually implement the design, we actually had to redesign the whole thing twice because the kind of flows that they were using were just incongruent with what the tech was capable of doing. And, and that's the thing, the UX as a field is extremely complex because you really need to have an understanding of all the pieces of this already complex ecosystem. So not only do you need to know how users will interact with an application, you need to know what the backend tech is capable of actually delivering. You know, what is the order of, of functions? So, you know, what kind of data can you pull in? What kind of data can you not pull in? How do you, you know, how do you aggregate this? There's a lot of, lot of angles that you need to approach this from. And I think that's also why, you know, we, we started with the mostly design, then, you know, we could technical capabilities really help us out, round out. After I stepped away from the law in 2016, I lasted very, very little time at a law firm in Sydney. I went into startups for a couple of years and had my own and then I worked with some other people. 
And I only came across product management as a as an industry and I started training into it in like late 2019, 2020. I loved the frameworks. The more that I read about user experience, the more that I just was obsessed with it. Like there's just so many concepts, things such as making assumptions about the user. That is huge. Like you need to be very empathetic to understand, well, where is the user coming from? When they are on that screen, another one that I love is contextual information. We're going to meet them where they are, understand the flow. And if they're trying to make a transaction, you know, Astra has that now. It says, you know, transaction loading, while it may take a while. You understand, look, the RPC nodes maybe under heavy load, whatever the case may be. Just that one sentence completely changes the experience. Yeah. Something that may be very standard in web two. You click a button, you see a notification. You have to understand (laughs) there has to be a callback. I mean, I was involved in a lot of those UI provisions in the early days. I had calls with Max and he was explaining to me like, yeah, the call books are not working. Like we can't refresh the state. And I had no idea what any of that meant. (laughs) But what we were both aware of was, look, we have to deal with what we have on the technical side. But the truth is, if we want this to work for users of a DAO, it has to change. And there were some pretty glaringly obvious examples of how there was an initial mismatch between the Web 2 world and the Web 3 world. You guys have mentioned it, like which information to display, how it gets updated, the way that things were filtered by. So I guess that this would be a really good segue to go into building on the near protocol. Looking at your portfolio, you've worked on several projects, I believe, across multiple chains. So I'd love to hear how building on the near ecosystem has been as an experience with the projects, any insights, take it away. You want me to be nice or honest? I want you to be as savage as you can. I need views. I need ratings. It's been tough, but it's getting better. It's getting really better. Near ecosystem has one of the best core teams that I know, but I see the near just get too big in no time. And I can understand the struggle that probably the the foundation or the near for, and it, it's really nice that they just established the Pagoda and it's just getting more and more steaming up towards the, you know, delivering more and more key infrastructure uses. But back in the days, it was just a jungle, jungle of where you, you can, for example, look for a documentation to understand how the transaction works. And the page would be having all the H1 title with no text. So the, the, this is the early days of near, like crazy limitations to our sequels, endless wise, right? So if you remember like the Sputnik reference implementation, sometimes you just DDoS this post for, for data plus public mixer to, to get the stuff, but it, it's all getting complicated when you're starting to try to build at scale. The Astra is very, very projects and project in terms of the middleware and backend. And maybe I hope like in the nearest future, we wouldn't need to have a middleware at all. Right. But back in the day, it was more or less all the option to build such pages where you have 400 DAOs, five data points each and you need to like, oh my God. I know there is a bunch of awesome guilds and communities who is contributing to the ecosystem on par with the foundation itself, like human guild, 
There's a lot of folks who, who care about the ecosystem. They have their own understanding how it should be working, how it should be decentralized. It's one of the faster forming decentralization wise ecosystem. Absolutely. It's getting better. We're definitely not there yet, but I think the community is one of the things that's really kind of pushed us to really building in the space. It doesn't have the kind of manic speculation driven engagement that, for example, a lot of like NFT forward chains have, you know, they, they kind of rabbit, let me gather as many PSV projects, you know, in a piece of the can and I'm going to make a million dollars. That, you know, hasn't quite set it. There's a, it's a, it's a lot, a lot of building driven engagement. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's cool. It's, the community is definitely one of the things that recommends the space. Sure. Also, Brad, I, I, I tested muting you from my end. Cause there was a bit of just uh, like, like a bit of noise coming from your end. So yeah, sorry for muting you without telling you. And yeah, it's, <laughs> it is actually great to get the, the laughter come through. So maybe muting the mic would be a, a loss for everyone, but yeah, just so you know, yeah, look, Max, honestly, this is where the podcast exists. You know, US politics, they say that media is like the fourth arm of the stage Depending where you go, there's different sayings, you know, here we say, you know, we keep the bastards honest. I think that in general, it is very important for ecosystems to be able to distribute ideas and for ideas to like merge and evolve once they're out there in the wild. And the way that I see it, the foundation is aware of some challenges, like starting with a year all the way from the CEO. And they've been literally working their way down systematically, restructuring, hiring, firing, regrouping. There's a lot of change. So to me, the question is, what is informing these changes? If your only data points are within, then you're going to have a very narrow and skewed view. For the more information that you get from the community, the more valuable. So I don't know how many people listen to this podcast within those positions, but I feel like it is very important for us to be able to acknowledge openly what works, what doesn't, and, you know, always in a constructive way. Same as you guys, I'm extremely optimistic of what the tech stack can do and of the current community, but I'm also, yeah, working in very long hours <laughs> every day because there is a lot more that needs to be built than what we have now if we, if we want to get to where we are. Lucky for us, we have you guys. Yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see where the ecosystem will be during the next cycle. I think it performed really, really well last year. Again, some data points says that it's one of the top growing ecosystems and communities. But sometimes I'm, I'm getting confused, honestly. So we have I agree with you. Uh, Astro developers in front of the chat, right? And there is can be like 600 messages in a day, in a day. So it's, it's more than active. This is in telegram. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. in telegram. That's horrible. That's a nightmare. That's I'm getting yeah, a slanty attack. <laughs> Most of them are like knowing what they're doing. And Dimitri, it's really the boss for like, just brilliantly like he's on it. Right and like comparing it for the near developers chat, for example, in the telegram, it's almost silent comparable to the astrophysicists. I understand that there's like a broader group where people just ask the same question, looking for an answer and stuff like this. 
but it's just faster. It's just small project like near dev tries to huge place to go for, to look for help. So I would, to me, when this high level ecosystem developers chat will have more than like 500, a thousand messages a day, people asking questions, getting answers, and then going to a smaller groups chat, that will be the point where I will say, okay, the near ecosystem now is really, really big and it's really, really active. Because right now I, I, I'm, I'm getting confused on that. I also think the, the space is a little bit better KPI or engagement, because I think the, the standard seems to be either unique number, number of unique wallets or number of wallets. It's fine, you know, but active doing what? What are they doing today? I, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's tough. Look, at around the time when we were working together, I had the, the joy I've been invited to work on a, on a project around onboarding. And I was pretty upfront at the time that I didn't believe the metrics the foundation was using mattered at all. Like I could say from the foundation's point of view, there are metrics for guilds and I'm like, Hey fam, I'm running a guild here. And I can tell you none of these matters. Like we can get all these metrics and you still would not have any clue as to how my guild is performing. So I feel like it's part of that challenge of having the conversation of what helps. And, and I do feel like we're moving in the right direction. Just going back to the point about the size of the chat and the engagement as putting our user experience hat on, that may be a statement as to the importance of privacy and having the right places to have the right conversations. Personally, I feel like some Discord groups are too large, just too much noise. I just didn't go in there. There may be one channel, which could be custom tailored for some things. I just don't spend time in that environment in general. And there may be, may be the second component, which I've actually had as a beginner in, in many fields that I've gone into, of maybe not wanting to ask something that you may feel stupid. And I know, because <laughs> I did my research, that it is one of the principles in your manifesto. Yeah. That I only yeah. ask things. Like, I, 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 don't, I didn't think that I know near, like, 1% of the space. Even, <laughs> even that I, like, six, five years actively developing for, like, really serious folks. It's still, I, I'm adopting myself every single time. Maybe I don't know something. Maybe, you know, they know, they definitely know better. They, People should know what they're doing. The hack. We, we encourage the acknowledgement of stupidity. And it, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> the problem, I think the problem with the adoptions and the inequalities versus users. My guess is that the ones who care about the adoption of the ecosystem is the L1 itself. And the projects who should be responsible for the adoption through UX care about presenting their technological innovation to L1. So in the end, nobody actually reaching out to the user because the L1 trying to, you know, do something and talk to people and advertise how it's cool to build within the ecosystem, but they are not actually building products. They just building an infrastructure that the maximum of the thing, right? And the actual products for the actual users you're not focused too much of the users. The successful ones 
definitely are, but most of them just trying to justify their smart contract or their new way of doing old things. So being focused on the tech instead of the, and why it's decentralized. In most cases, I had this experience working, Rami had this experience. He shared this screenshot with me. When we, we were doing the auction because someone from the community back in the days asked us to have a secondary marketplace for NFTs. And at some point we said, okay, let's try to talk to VC folks, right? Because magic part is self-funding the project a bit. We yeah. have the grants from the near foundation. Let's not touch this one. But we were talking about with VCs. I talked maybe to 30 of them, right? Starting from the incubation, from the like top 10 exchanges up to the like small and random VCs. And there was an actual screenshot that Ravi sent me. A person from the VC funds asked, do you guys seem interested in VC capital? Yes. Ravi got invited to the group. The first question that he gets is basically when the token line. And we like, I don't know, like maybe in the next year, we are, we are comfortable centralized. There is no need for a token. It's the auction model, right? Maybe we will have a DAO to collect the fees. But no, we're not. And tokenizing is not a trivial thing. It requires thought and... So in the end, only if you want to do it properly. <laughs> person just instantly said, yes, okay, bye. Just no, he's like, get back to us when you know a token. I was like, no, I'm not getting a token. There's two really good things there. And I love that people are able to call it as it is on this podcast, because not many people do it, or maybe they don't know where it is appropriate to do it. The first one is, I absolutely love that you guys are able to see the distinction in priorities. I heard it from the foundation at the very top. I only care about these metrics. These metrics are my job. I don't give a fuck about your product and your adoption. These are my metrics, my bonus, my team. And that was really painful for me to hear because I saw so many people in the community for lack of a better word, sacrificing themselves to work for those people, for those metrics. And it's like, well, we'll hear those metrics and then what? You get your big fat bonus and the community is still exactly where it was before. So understanding that some people must optimize some things, it's great, be it technical, be it community, those things need to happen. But we have to understand what role do we play? And for the vast majority of us, we have to be building products for people. And the user experience lives within the product. There's this weird tension of does the layer one bring the users to the product or does the product bring the users to the layer one? If I were to give you some examples, I've seen some NFT projects that want to launch, like they pick their chain where they think they can make money. Conversely, Sweatcoin is probably single-handedly net provider of research to the near particle. Like they own their product, they own the user experience. So I love that we're starting to cast a light on builders and we're empowering people to, I mean, think outside the box. There's no need to copy other people and what can you build that brings users. The second bit, and I'll be really quickly and I'll give it back to you is, I love that we can also acknowledge that there are less than optimal not to the bad players at every level, including fees. No, it's, it's, it's stupid money. Unfortunately, even though it's been the better part of a decade, we're still 
not very well versed with the pieces of this ecosystem. You're really not. Because most people that I've seen, when they talk about the token model, it's basically average. That's not a token model. Yeah. It just tells you where the, where the tokens are going. It tells you nothing about how the token will. Yeah. To give you a comparison to what Ravi referenced to you, we were giving a quote for Ethereum-based project for a token model design and, and the actual protocol implementation. And we're talking like six zeros. This is just a scope of work. This is not like we're earning too much, much art almost doesn't have margin. It's just a amount of hours that is required from a high level people to design the model, do the economics design, create the white papers, like, and do the actual math and equations to it. It's not something you can, for a lot of people, you just go to the token farm, fill in a couple of fields and you have a token. That's not a token. That's, it's, it's not the, the token designer by any means. I'm watching one of the streamers. It's a gaming industry. And they have a very strong sentiment against the crypto. I generally 90% sharing the sentiment of the other topics, but since I'm deeply engaged with crypto, I just understand that the person is not seeing the actual benefit of the crypto, the actual people who you said sacrificing themselves, trying to create something decentralized to go away from authorities and industry itself projecting a very bad picture of speculants and people here to for the sake of dumb money every once in a while i see some quote-unquote influencer who for example okay nears evm suck and i'm like he doesn't even have one what the heck are you talking about like you know something something really real people are trying to talk things that they don't know and earn money that we don't actually deserve to. And hope that things will change. I hope that things will change. It is a challenge because in the real world, we separate influencers and media from products. At some yeah. points, they converge. But I feel like in crypto, they may be too intertwined. Uh, Max, I, I am mindful of your time. So I feel like we've talked a lot about tokenomics. And this is something that I know a lot of people don't know much about. But it really piques their interest. So I feel like maybe it is very new for a lot of people. It's not like they don't want to go into it. Do you guys have any resources that you would recommend for people that would like to learn more about this? Could be articles, someone to follow, projects that you think have done a really good work? I can name a few out of that. First of all, you, you, you should give a visit for talking engineering comments. Absolutely. Uh, they, they do a lot of research. You can go and uh, see long but science. Uh, this is the uh, very early days crypto token designs there's a lot it's basically one of the best data scientists collectives that i know without question the sake of seeing it and how it works you can take a look how balancer token works the the other type of thing you can take a look how coin grants blockland works so there is actual system design in, in place there is actual things happening not just, you know, a foundation hired someone to go through the Google form and then do the decision. It's the, the actual kind of tap in math and it data science. So to begin with, you need to learn what types of tokens, what's the difference between the currency, the token, security, and stuff like this. Maybe read about the regulations where you add. To, to not, for example, create a security token and go for utility one because you don't want to get, you know, 
Yeah. You see it breathing down your neck. And it's a pretty cold. It's a nice to have. Uh, <laughs> rather than just going and even if you'll go to a top performer, pretty token. But if it, it's just, no, it's just a very awesome smart contract. There is a really good is episode. He to, is he allowed to cuss on, on, on your... Of course. Of course. <laughs> and invite me. <laughs> Building for the decentralized world. I am not going to censor anyone. Unless they talk shit about me. <laughs> so as far as, as far as tools, so the, you know, as Max... I, 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 all right. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. All right. So yeah. As far as tools are getting... As Max said, token, tokenomics is, is, is a very complicated topic. It's, it's complex systems design for a system that is not well understood or not. The primitives are still being researched. People are still, you know, kind of speculating on things like different types of voting, you know, conviction voting, your programming voting, things like that. Different ways of kind of ingress and egress of, of, of tokens. So you, know, you have different types of token bonding curves. So. You know, to really create a good, like, strong, well-designed topogonomic system, not only do you need to understand the primitives, and if you guys do want to understand the primitives, uh, WhatsApp actually does a lot of research on these topics. Jeff, I read, is really, really good at, at, the, at the, the material that he puts out. Blocks Common Stack is another one. You know, they, they've, been, they've been talking a lot about primitives, but once you have those primitives, you need to be able to model and simulate. And that's where I would use an open source tool like CatCan, which, you know, anyone who knows Python can quite rapidly adopt the library and really have a lot of resources to kind of go through some initial model design and, you know, there's platforms like BlockScience Labs, which is kind of like the Git, like a GitHub version of both that system design. So there's a lot of stuff out there, but it's still very much in flux. Yeah. Which I love. Because it highlights the scientific method. Anyone that claims to be an expert, they're full of shit. Just tell them to go Absolutely. away. <laughs> you need to come at it with a beginner's mindset. And yes. it's about iteration. It's about being humble and acknowledging that it may work. It may not. But what I really like about the tokenomics element is that it brings in a lot of elements that are new, even in the broader mm -hmm. world. So for instance, behavioral design. I love it. Behavioral design, nudge theory, it really gets me going because it's very subjective, but also very predictable. I don't know if listeners have heard much about behavioral design, but there are some famous studies around, you know, the default options and trying to get to desired outcomes by changing the default settings. So for instance, an example is, I think there were two countries. One had an opt-in organ donation system and one had an opt-out. So in one country, you by default donate and in the other mm -hmm. one, by default, you don't donate. The fascinating outcome there was that both countries had the same percentage, give or take, of people that opted in or out. So the takeaway seems to be that only about 30% of people cared enough to do anything at all, whether they wanted in or out. The remaining 70% were just like blissfully unaware until gold, gold, whatever is standard. And in that example, you can see how a 70% donors or not donors makes a huge difference. Another really interesting example was they wanted to increase the fruit and vegetables consumption at a school. Mm -hmm. 
And what they figured out was that if they put the fruit and vegetables at the beginning of the cafeteria, of the line where they pick up food, the kids wouldn't pick up any because they were like too eager to get the real food. But then if they put it at the last line, the plates were already full and they wouldn't pick up any anyway. So what they did was put it in the middle, like an island, so that mm-hmm. they would have the fruit as they were walking by and they were able to increase consumption by a third percentage. Those are two examples that kind of like open the door of possibilities on how you can change things to encourage people's behavior. It may also be worth mentioning that from the Behance file that you shared me, that'll be included in the show notes, you have conveniently, I guess, magic power to have conveniently worked with Common Stack, Cat Cat, and Block Science Labs before. So I guess that you've been yes. very well placed to learn from it's, this. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why we work with, with a lot of these people is, is also what drives our community in, in a lot of ways. The people that work with us are not starting the group. These guys, all of, all our devs, designers are senior by any, any metric that you could find. They have worked, they have developed expertise. Now they come to us. Yes, we do pay above average on the whole, but the very clear thing that they get or are interested in working with us for is complexity of tasks and the challenge of work. And the thing is that if you don't have this mindset, you're not likely to really thrive in Magic Power. The thing that allows us to give these projects is to find clients and, and kind of partners that are on the cutting or bleeding edge. Nobody wants to design the next NFT marketplace. Yes, it's a bread and butter, we'll do it because you know, you do, you do need to pay the bills at the end of the day, but that's not what people are joining Magic Power. You join Magic Power because, you know, we work with we designed tokenomic systems for an artist collective that is against standard voting norms. So you actually have a set of design an entirely new way of decision-making with this really kind of, you know, free thinking group of people that don't want yes, no, as part of it. How do you do that? How do you make a voting system where one doesn't say yes or no? And that is the kind of stuff that we want to work. How to design a voting system for anarchists. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. Or like, how do you, how do you, you know, deal with new asset classes? You know, like semi-fungible tokens or like a, a regression market with automatic regression. This is a theory at this point. It's not actually, it's not been operationalized. But we want to operationalize it because it's fun. It's tough. It's complicated. It gives, you know, our devs who are in the, in the web two world were solutions architects building complex Slack integrations for massive companies, which require 150 engineers, you know, and then if they come to web three and we give them the next decks to build out, that's not going to fly. <laughs> so who do we end up working with is, is it like block science, the block science labs building out the GitHub version for for systems modeling, common stack, who are talking about these commons tools when people were, they still didn't know anything crypto beyond Bitcoin and maybe some Ethereum. So that's really why we work with these things because they were doing things before people were even thinking about this. You know, what's amazing. It's all so meta. It's, it's all connected. <laughs> it's, it's free market all the way, you know? Yeah. 
you choose your clients and your clients choose you by the developers that choose you and you choose them. And this is a lesson yeah. for everyone listening. If you're new to the real world, this is how it works. If you really want to do something and you want to get the best people to do it, you've got to pay them well because they're scarce. Absolutely. No question about it. But the shit side is that the flip side is also true. If you want to do something really boring and mediocre and nobody wants to work on it, you also have to pay them a lot of money because they don't want to be there. <laughs> That's the worst case scenario. It's because the worst of both. Because if the next person offers a, a dollar more an hour, they're gone. That is why vision, passion, conviction, long-term thinking are so important. And this may be a really good part to take us back to something that I mentioned before, but I literally did not want to waste Max's time by reading off his website. (laughs) But something that really struck me is that the website is extremely simple. And had I not been familiar with your actual work, I would think you guys are full of shit. So I'll read for the manifesto and I'd love to highlight and discuss the simplicity of the approach and then the actual delivery and the shipping. How does that sound? So I'll be linking on the show notes. Uh, just just one one caveat for one kind of disclaimer. You didn't write this? No. So one of the things that you said, you know, how you have kind of this completely anarchistic process-free focus on stuff and just get stuff done versus a really process-driven standardized. So we, Max and I, we sit down on two ends of that spectrum. I am very process-driven. That's just in the way I, I, I was growing up. That was the way that I worked and that I startups. I've worked on manufacturing lines. So it's, you know, it's very process driven because in my view, if you have a process, it frees up cognitive space to do, you know, to innovate. That, that's my point. Max thrives in chaos. He is like, you throw something into the deep end, they will learn how to swim. Or they'll drown, which is an acceptable outcome. It, it's, and they'll be happy with it. <laughs> they yeah. embrace it. That's, it was... they'll, they'll know, they'll know where they stand, what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, and that will be learning lesson. Right? So this is, these are the two ends of this. And the reason why as a community, we kind of work is because we acknowledge that we're two ends of the spectrum. We try to meet somewhere in the middle. That middle is not a point. It's, it's a kind of hazy, you know, ever evolving. It's a wave. It's a wave. It's a brain length, you know? <laughs> yeah. The website is actually a very good example of that, where I was like, oh, you know, why do I go to a website? I go to a website because I want all the information. And he's like, why do I go to a website? I go to a website because I want to be intrigued and I want to dig deep, deep. And the website is kind of like on that fuzzy midpoint between the two points of I'm trying to grow the YouTube followers. So we're going to have uh-huh. an experiment. First thing going to do is drive it. And then I'm yeah. going to share my screen. <laughs> And for people listening, the links will be in the show notes. So maybe listen to the description first and go see the description. So the way we describe it is it's got a navigation menu with very small font and it's got like a panoramic view of a sunset or a sunrise with like a volcano sunrise. in the back. Sunrise. Thanks for very, the very, very apocalyptic kind of 
Yeah, yeah. Don't like landscape, right? This yeah. one freeze is purple. And the camera is focused like right on the floor and it's like rocks. And right in the middle, there is a white, bright square with rocks cube. gravitating cube. around it. It's a cube, sorry. It's yeah, cube. Because that's the magic about love. So that's the, that's the kind of time. But yeah, it's the cube so, of light that is rising from the apocalyptic landscape. <laughs> which is basically Max in an image. Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm on the landing page. This is the only thing you see. There's no scrolling. No, okay. There's no nothing. Okay. And you're like, these people are summoning Rust developers. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally like black, like black magic, or I don't know. Like I felt drawn to the screen. You know, like I started getting closer. Like. <laughs> So it is what it is, right? That would be any effect. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna share now, and please let me know in the comments below if you're on YouTube if my description was accurate. If you're listening and you're watching on the website on your own device, please hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you think. If you are entranced and you feel like applying, there's also a link on the bottom right. Okay, so manifesto. We do things differently. Number one, innovation is a project requirement. Number two, honest feedback is the fastest path to success. Number three, asking dumb questions is the fastest way to progress. Number four, the V in MVP stands for valuable as much as viable. Number five, we'd rather be useful than seem helpful. Number six, project should make sense. Number seven, Adapt tools to jobs rather than jobs to tools. Number eight, no one's matters. And number nine, do the mother work. That's a, <laughs> so it's a slight editorial, editorial edition there. Number nine, <laughs> passion comes through sometimes. Number nine, do the work. So it's very simple. A high school kid could have recited this, but I feel like there is so much lost in the simplicity and by looking at the quality and the output of your work, it certainly seems that at the very least you guys walk the talk. And I really like that you've clarified the balance between the chaos and the process, because I feel like that may actually be the measure of a genius. I handle it. If it was up to Max, there would just be the hero image. And one line that would have been his ideal website. I was like, you have to put the portfolio in there. If people want to see what we have done, like you'd have to have some more media, you have to have a link. Like, there was a whole, yeah, it was, but you know, I was watching an interesting episode about what the cringe factor means, because I, I'm sure people will look at this and, and there will be a certain cringe factor that comes in the kind of over earnestness so the. I'm just saying, it does happen. I, I won't be surprised if it did. The other thing is that this is in some way the most honest and basic distillation of how we function. This is also one of the reasons he put it on here explicitly is because I say these exact things in different words to clients every time I talk to them. Because what I get from clients is, 
why does it cost so much to do branding? I can go to Nike and Designs and do eighth of the price. That's fine. It's no problem. But the, I have to explain constantly why we do what, why we charge what we charge for what we do and why what we do is not something you can get from the average freelance. It's because there's so much more that goes into it. The approach is different. We encourage the acknowledgement of stupidity because that's the only way we see as, as providing the feedback. So in some ways, this is the distillation of what I try to communicate to people all the time. I think it's accurate. There's many layers to it. I love to overthink things and go really deep in bizarre ways, but I feel like even the simplicity of the language, there is no effort taken to sound sophisticated and long sentences and long words. It it just shows how you work. It it hasn't been, you know, there's there's no bullshit varnish on top of it. But to your point about the, the cost, and I know that agency is a dirty word. And you guys are a collective, which is trendy and very 20 <laughs> Except we started in 2016. So you are time travelers. You're time travelers. Absolutely. Absolutely. During my dog days, I used to wear a suit and go to a law firm. I was charged out. I was a very junior. I was, I was barely out of university. I was charged out at $250 an hour. Obviously, I was getting none of that. But the point is, many times over, and this came up during my working career and during university, a lot of clients inevitably ask, why are lawyers so expensive? And why some lawyers get paid so much money? And the truth is, you're paying for someone to take over your problems. Now it is your stress. You deal with it. And I think that there may be a parallel here with the model that you guys have, because if you're a founder a founding team, a core team, and you've got passion and drive and you live for your project 24-7, if you want the output to have your standard, you have to pay for someone to care about it as much as you do and to think about it as deeply as you do. And the truth is, that has a price. You have to make people care about the project. If you're invoicing on an hourly basis and moving on to the next one, it's hard to get to that deeper level of meaning, especially with something like branding. 90% of it is you thinking about the minute detail that may not be obvious to the eye, but it's sinking somewhere in your brain. Like I had to close the website because that was actually hypnotizing me. <laughs> yeah, that was very much the, the it was inquiry and questioning, but I do want to put one caveat into what you said. I've spent a lot of time as a consultant, more necessity than want, because I'll be honest with you, being a consultant always paid more. That's just the way that it turns out. But there was a very interesting thing that one of my mentors said, you can be a consultant or you can be a manager. A manager is when you do somebody's work for them. A consultant is when you help them do their work better. Or issue in some ways is that we have to find a fine line between the two because we are taking ownership of an entirely entire part of the project but we're also helping them do what they want to do better and it does lead to complications in client relationships when that line is blurred right whether that is because a client feels entitled to give us extra work because they are paying us and that never really goes well, because at some point we're like, no, we have a well-defined scope and there's a reason why we have that well 
not because we don't want to do more, but because at some point out of our experience, we understand that if we cross that line, then the responsibilities get blurred, outcomes get blurred, and you end up paying more, you get less, it just becomes a complete mess. So treading that line between manager and consultant requires actually a surprising amount of administrative work on my side, for example, you know, to manage expectations. But what they're paying for in a lot of ways, other than the fact that we're completely taking something over and delivering what we, in our many, many years of experience, think is the best outcome for them, it's they're paying for expertise and completeness and robustness. I'll give you a simple example. Branding is actually a very good example. We get a lot of clients who are like, yes, we have a branding package and they will deliver us a PDF, which is six pages long. The fonts, and I think fonts is really emblematic of, of how different a deliverable can be. Most branding packages provide fonts. So the fonts of this website or brand will be Roboto and that's it. Our deliverable gives you the exact case, size, font type, bold italics, whatever that might be, for every single type of font that you will use from a title to a caption. Why? Because font size changes depending on whoever's building out a product. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, you know, open up own fund. Own fund is, is one of my favorite kind of, especially in this format. So for people listening, I'm just showing my screen, the Behance profile for Magic Powered. And there is their portfolio with all the work and it illustrates really well, but what Ravi is describing now in regards to the level of detail for font and all the, the branding and appearance. Oh my God, this one's beautiful. Actually, I guess this is not that good for the fonts, perhaps. I know which one. A block science is really good. I saw that one earlier today. Or may have been cut, cut. No, I lied. Okay. It was definitely the common stack. <laughs> no, but, but, but the reason why I remember, no, the reason why I remember yeah. is because I actually read the description of the font. Here we go. Yeah. IBM Plexant is a neutral yet friendly, grotesque, subtile type space typeface. <laughs> the balance of natural and the engineered is the backbone of the IBM Plexant. This hyperface has the excellence, legibility in web and mobile interfaces. Sir, take my money. I'm going to take a mortgage to pay for this level of service. This particular and this particular brand package when we delivered it is actually links to research documents that we have for each of these, these decisions. This was actually a very good use case because they had a very specific KPI outcome that they wanted. They wanted to increase user retention across a very specific field or a specific demographic. So the research that we did was based on very much on that specific KPI. And we were able to meet the requirement based on the branding. The exact method just that's Max's purview. But yeah, this was, this was a very interesting experiment. Even the color palette, right? I mean, the, the, the idea of the branding color palette in the brand package is Every color is described in hex in CMYK and RGB, exactly what colors will be used. So that if you wanted to print t-shirts, you could use it. If you wanted to create a digital document, you could use it. Anything else in between, you can hand it over to another designer and they can do it. That's really our entire mindset is that we want to deliver you a complete package that you can take and do whatever the heck we want. 
finding designers, but hiring those designers. Thank you. Which is industry standard. I'm now sharing the page from the NIR website, NIR.org. They've got a branding kit at the very bottom. And it also illustrates what Ravi is describing now in regards to the typography, the sizes, in which ways it should be utilized. We've got all the base colors with the hex file. Like this is what you should be striving for if you want to have excellence in terms of branding. And if somebody delivers a PDF document to you as the final deliverable, do not accept that. That is unacceptable. That's not yes. cover for brand package. I learned that the hard way. You, if they don't give you your logo in a vector format, unacceptable. I learned that the hard way. If you're not getting all your files in formats you did not know that existed, <laughs> you are probably overpaying and getting less than you should. They should yeah. PNG, SVG, I don't even know what else exists there. I didn't know how to open it, but it's there. <laughs> a Figma file. Yeah, if you don't get those base files, that, that is not, I'm not even saying, you know, you're, you're charging, it's just not an acceptable, you know, Outcome. It's like getting a note document with your code base. Yes, you could potentially use it, but that's not, that's unacceptable. You get a GitHub repo, that's the acceptable art. Expect more from your designers. Just do it. Let's expect more. The advice really goes to everyone because I'm assuming there would be some builders in the audience, some users just learning, and some designers that may be more junior or getting into the industry. These are excellent tips, you know, how to really excel at delivering for your clients. I understand why people do come across. I have at this point started six startups and all of them have failed. So I understand the importance of, of cost cutting. I'm only watching a budget, mainly a budget, but the importance of getting good deliverables in the long run is actually better because if you get a complete deliverable, you can actually do whatever you want to do with it. So tomorrow, if you go to hire an in-house designer, do it. But then this deliverable will allow you to have complete freedom from the original originator of that branding, who may not be available, may have suddenly gone, gone with, you know, gouging price. I don't know. Malfeasance happens all. That's one of the biggest issues we find is that because there's so much fuckery that happens with the agencies, I have to keep apologizing for our kind of big work. And I don't want to do that. Just be better. We all get to rant as much as we want on this podcast. I, I, I'm going to have to rebrand eventually to ABB rant. I will, if you'll have me, I will be on that one. I got a lot of rants. Let's do a special event. As, as the client facing I guess, person, I wish more people would come and help you with my job, but I, 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 I know where you're coming from. I have so many rants. Well, we can, we, we can devise a Sunday special. <laughs> The thing that I tried to convey to some of my friends and over the years I've grown more networks in the indie hacker space, startups in general, crypto crazy over the last few years, you need to have some level of introspection and just being honest with yourself. Sure. Because price and level of commitment are a natural filter. If you've got an idea and you don't really put many hours into it, it's just not going to grow. That would be filter number one. But the second filter yeah. is, it, do you think that your idea has enough potential to really dedicate not just your personal time, which is a great first threshold, but also, as you say, invest in offer deliverables? Because 
Some projects are hobbies, some are experiments, and these are actually amazing. I love to see that sort of experimentation, be as lean as you can, be as resourceful as you can. But there are certainly some projects that they cross that line into, this is going to be here in five years time. And what do I have to get to get there? And I mentioned this because when we enter the realm of near grants, for sure, we're looking at those projects. Who can bring 10 million users onto the blockchain? The questions that we ask are, how does this get us closer to 1 billion users on chain? Ask yourself, am I in that category? Yes, no. Can I get myself into that category? And if the answer is yes, spend the money. It's actually... I need to get a referral fee if you... (laughs) Done, done. This, I have, we'll, we'll, we'll issue a referral code for you. And- Magic powered slash AVB sold me this. <laughs> <laughs> AVB rank. A couple of things. Let's start with what you said about the type of projects. People build projects for different reasons. They have different capabilities. They have different startup capital. I fully understand. The assumption of bad faith actors is not always right. Some people may just not have the experience or the knowledge to be able to map out these larger concepts like market and how particularly in crypto which doesn't really have a whole lot of existing patterns that you can read what draws people in a lot of it is conjecture why is near misfits or mrs brown more attractive than something else it's hard to really pin down a lot of it has to do with marketing a lot of it has to do with the people you bring on board, it has to do with the art. doesn't a whole bunch of things, right? I don't think the assumption that everyone should be building in a similar way is necessarily a productive one, particularly for an early stage ecosystem like Nier. Agreed. But that being said, I think Nier is an in- in- interesting position because even though it is relatively small, it is extremely advanced for an ecosystem system. From tooling to the engagement of the OGs, the activity in the Twitter space, it is in a unique position. And now really is the time to capitalize on this, what I would consider a special space that they're in right now. The NFT space, for example, right? There's there's probably a handful of projects that you consider as forming the backbone of the NFT system. I think this is the time for your foundation and, and kind of the core team to work with these projects to build the NFT space because they're making moves, but we don't know the moves they're making. For example, the partnership with Nier and CLGP, it could potentially have very real consequences, positive consequences for the Nier NFT ecosystem. CLGP is a big player. They have a multi-year relationship being built up. I'm not artists. It's an IRL gallery in, in Chicago, which is kind of helping them with the, the strategy. This could be quite good for the overall ecosystem, but we don't know about that. As NFT projects, we like, you know, as the auctions, the secondary marketplace, sale GP, should be talking to us, should be talking to Fire, should be talking to Midface, should be talking to 10K or all these other people so that collectively we can help bring more people to the space so that sale GP can have a successful launch and continued sale outcomes that don't really exist in Nier right now. Well, we've got millions of listeners on this podcast, so I'm sure that Nier will reach them. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I 
think I mentioned before that, you know, the measure of a true genius is not only being able to operate within your chaos, but reaching out to the people that complement your skills. Max has done it really well with you to help run a magic powered in a way that leads to success. Wait, so are you saying, are you saying I'm the genius or Max not? You're both geniuses in your own right. <laughs> Maybe Max would be the more... This is a good saying. Like messy mind, I'm lady okay with that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, I always say my job is to sell my ex Look, there's there's the Joe Rogans and there's the Jamies. <laughs> I believe you're Jamie. But it's, it, dude, the podcast would be over without him. Anyway, I was going to mention this. We do have this very, very weird setup in the near ecosystem where it is like oddly elastic. At times it feels very small. At times it feels very large. And sometimes I feel like we do struggle in connecting the right resources and the right people. We've been grappling with this in the marketing DAO for months. I'm very vocal nowadays about we have resources for people that are able to do anything that loosely is affiliated with marketing that leads to growth. But I want to see more people talking about the innovation on our tech stack. Near has had incredible advancements over the last six years. I want to see people talking about the projects building on Near and how to get more users to those projects. I want to see people talking about the partnerships and, and the real world integration. I don't think it is good enough anymore to have somebody that can say, I can open 50 wallets. Anyone can, just I can go to the supermarket and get someone to open 50 wallets. Like yeah. we really need to push the boundaries of communicating what Near can do, what we are doing so far. And that's the challenge that we have. We have to be differentiated from other blockchain ecosystems. It's just the truth. And I feel like some people have gone bonkers with NFTs. The dirty secret is that is all you can do on that blockchain. There's nothing else that you can do. I mean, you guys have used your experience for, for a living. How would you describe what the near tech stack enables you to build user experience wise? And it's really shit that we're almost in the one and a half hour mark and we're only touching this now, but not <laughs> even drinking, not even drinking, I promise. This is a good thing about when I might call at 6.30 in the morning. I have enough time. I can, I can extend before the family wakes. So. Oh no. Is this where your family was angry with you in the background? <laughs> no, actually, actually, my walked in. And we're boarding up the roof on the on the garage. So when I end this call, I'm going to go. Okay. As long as we didn't wake them up on their their week off, no, no. I won't feel guilty. I think Amsterdam is a very good example of not just the capabilities of the New York tech stack, but also the kind of weather wind for the community itself. The fact that we have pioneered, in a sense, this whole ecosystem of sub-DAOs, which can very, very efficiently share, distribute a large amount of funds while holding people to much greater accountability than something like the grants program. I think it is a very, very good indicator of where we are going or where we can go. Because I'll be honest with you, of all of the stuff that I write on Twitter, I write about astronaut the most. Because to me, it is something that is worth putting the entire weight of the near ecosystem people. Because this is the differentiator in a lot of ways from all the ecosystems. Like, I don't want to see another fucking Aragon DAO. I don't. It doesn't work. Don't, don't ask me. There, I'm sure there are use cases where it works. I haven't about that. But 
as a continued engaged community member, I don't want it now with 2000. A, because I don't know most of them. I don't have this, I'm guaranteed that I don't have the same internal alignment with them than I, as I do with the DAO of like five, seven, 10, 15, 20 people. It, that's just natural. hundred percent. I mean, credit where credit is due. I'm from the old school and I followed the Aragon team very closely. I followed the common stack team very closely. And I feel like that may be what we're missing. They didn't have the technology. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, the technology, and we should actually invite them over to the new ecosystem. But I feel like we're missing the people that really see the need for reorganize in a different way. And then how? Uh, I see what you said. It, it's a philosophical. The, the, the drivers, the drivers of culture, in a sense, as opposed to yeah, who is articulating why the world needs this? Who has the communities that are ripe for adoption? If I had to put a simple framework to it. If the money is not coming from the new foundation, who is creating a DAO and what are they using it for? I'm going to tell you a little story. Back in 2018, I was actually looking for these common stack type of platform and I considered Aragon and basically everything out there because I had an idea. You know, I, I left Venezuela in 2008 and it was this weird setup talking about behavioral science where there was currency control. So it was very hard for people to access USD and there was a black market, which made a huge gap between the official currency and the, the price on the streets. I, my in Ukraine are really on this place. But the government did something that to them was very smart. They included overseas students. So Venezuelans going to study overseas in the preferred currency category. They literally gave me. I mean, they didn't give me, it was incredibly expensive anyway, and we paid out of our own <laughs> But we have access to preferential dollars. So they basically shipped everyone that's agreed with them overseas, make sure that they study and they stay, just didn't want any opposition inside the country. That changed in about 2014. 2013, 2014, that ended. And it was pretty bad because I was in my last two years. It was three semesters mm -hmm. of university. And even then, we, we really struggled to, to pay for that. My reflection was, I got extremely lucky that I was able to leave when I did. And without those programs that there's a weird sense of guilt, because obviously I didn't put the program in place, but it can't be denied that the currency control epically fucked the country. Like it's just bankrupted beyond measure. Like no the destruction in the economy is, it's going to be studied by economists for years. So anyway, my idea was, and I may bring it back after this podcast, to create a fund where Venezuelan expats like myself, if you've migrated, if you had studies, if you have a good career, if you're established, we could pool money together to try to extend the opportunity for the younger generations, you know, pay it forward kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But you can see that the challenge with the Venezuelan communities is that we don't believe in institutions. Because the institutions that we come from are completely broken. And the cost of coordinating activity across expats all over the world, it's more than what you're going to fundraise. Like how much is it going to cost me to have a foundation in the U.S. with legal entities everywhere? So, okay, okay. So, so let, me, let, me, let me preface this by saying big DAOs are very good at fundraising. There's a core message. There's core messaging. There's, there's a group of people that, as you said, have other thought leaders and people can get behind. 
They're very good at that. What they don't seem to be that good at doing is disseminating funds at a loan. Because at that local level, the requirements and messaging needs to be tailored. And most big organizations don't do well because they don't understand at that local level what is needed. So either they, their message gets distorted by its oversimplification or engagement drops because of complexity of message. In some ways, it's not a perfect system, but the distribution of funds from, from near the near foundation to filter through the astrodial ecosystem to much smaller communities is a good model. The only issue is that right now, the entity disseminating the funds is a foundation versus a DAO. If you took a large DAO as the financial instrument to collect the funds, but used a much smaller series of sub DAOs that are making cases to each other and are getting funds through through voting system. I'm not saying it's it's totally malfeasance proof, but it's faster. It's more localized, and it could potentially be more effective. Potentially, potentially. That's my thought. We're dealing with different issues. Yeah. A, a foundation structure is really good at preventing malfeasance. I assume the foundation's law in Switzerland is different from Australian common law, but the general principle is the same all over the world. The foundation has a mandate. You have a shit ton of money. You can only spend it on that mandate. If the foundation starts buying yachts and whatever, they can pilfer all the money. You have legal recourse against them. If money was not spent according to the mandate. And that's right. why when you're looking at creating different organizations for the foundation to disperse money into, and we're looking into doing that for the marketing DAO, the marketing DAO has to be a foundation with a mandate for marketing the new ecosystem. Because if we go off the rails and start funding whatever crazy stuff, there is a recourse there. So it's interesting how the clashing of both systems, like, well, we don't want to have the legal bit, but maybe we need it if we want to get a hundred million. And then on the other hand, we've got, well, DAOs introduce a tool that leverages technology that may actually be more efficient and more transparent. Maybe that's what the foundation is lacking. Yeah, let's be honest, efficiency-wise, they're really not the best at processing grants at the moment. No, no. You said actually some pretty interesting thing about how one of the things that, that you know, teams like Aragon and Bitcoin and Stack have is, is those... Cultural leaders, subset. They have a lot of standing within the Web3 space in general. The outcome of that, or the reason why they have that visibility is also because they, A, they came on early, they did very visible projects. I think that exists in the near ecosystem. I know people who are rapidly pursuing this kind of decentralization and they have very good, they feel in their core the need for this. I just don't think that we necessarily have the the tools or the eyeballs to elevate these voices to the same level as Griff, for example, right? It, it's, it's, it's a different mechanism to be able to push. And I think the key may not be as much to bring people in as to elevate ex existing voices. Uh, because, because I think I think bringing people in poses the... the Problem that you and I see that that lot in the Ethereum ecosystem system where where it's not about what is the word as opposed as much about always 
saying that something will be delivered. I've seen that and it's not, in a lot of ways led to and us. I think Max and I had the similar experience in 2016 and, and, you know, kind of the 2018, 2020, where we just stepped away from a lot of these projects that we were working on because, you know, there was a lot of talk about culture. There was a lot of talk about developing, you know, certain like thought processes and, and, oh, you know, vision, but not everyone was delivering on that. So I think, I think sometimes building up people that do deliver and have that thought process as a more quiet, like internal monologue, then it is very conservative sort of outward facing staging. I can definitely see what you're saying in the sense that our principle, principle. Well, I'm a content creator. Like this podcast is a living statement of trying to provide a platform for people that are doing really interesting work. It could be theoretical or, or practical. And I do think, I mean, now that you mention it, there may actually be a spectrum whereby if the blockchain enables you to build, you may just naturally spend more time building. And if there are technological constraints, you may spend more time on the theoretical and philosophical. So maybe somewhere in the middle, I remember in 2016, 2017, 2018, because the technology was just not there. I went through many rabbit holes. I just like the intellectual engagement of people building out these models and these communities for collaboration. And I feel like maybe we're failing upwards in the sense that our user experience is so cool <laughs> and it is so easy to deploy a community that yeah. no one puts much thought into you know, what does it stand for and, and what does it do? I guess that, that was my comment not specifically about bringing these people because I respect them. I would like to have more that community of intellectual pursuit. And to be fair, this actually happened I, I before the crazy ICO craze. And I tuned out myself during the bear market. So maybe I'm romanticizing something that was not actually there for very long, but. No, no, no. I'm totally, I'm here for what you're saying. I fully agree with you. The key is to enable a platform for people who do have this kind of the, the need for intellectual pursuers to communicate cross chain because ultimately decentralization has nothing to do, in my view, with Ethereum or, or near whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a frame of mind enabled by a set of, you know, supported by an engagement. That's, you know, these are, in my view, the three pieces of, of, of the puzzle. And that doesn't happen necessarily in a silo fashion as, you know, the way we've been doing it, right? I agree. Um, and I think that could be a really good way to start wrapping it up as I, in theory, have a meeting in six minutes. I, I, no problem. Where I can keep talking. So this could be a marathon. We're going to break some records. Where should we point people if they, if we've piqued curiosity around these early communities we've mentioned, common stack, we've mentioned some tokenomics communities. Are there any other resources that perhaps we can start introducing to the near ecosystem? We could try the governance forum. We could try different avenues just to spark those conversations, especially during a bear market. I know that everyone's busy building, but Fill the scope for it. There's, there's, I think there's the scope for that. I think Common Stack is, 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 a, is, a, is a good community. Token Engineering is a very interesting community to be part of. They have a Telegram group. I honestly, like, you know, I, I, I recently joined Friends Without Benefits and it's been a very interesting process. I, I would, I would encourage people who, you know, who have funds to spare to kind of join that community. It's, it's, it's very engaging and, and all-encompassing community that I've been part of. Not the most technical one, but it's good, I think. Other than that, honestly, like nothing 
comes to mind right away, I would, you know, worst case scenario, whenever the episode comes out, I can drop some comments. And... Thing that we've said, and certainly not all of it, but a lot. A lot, a lot. Ravi, thanks so much for your time. I like the, even though Max left, part of his spirit stayed behind with us. I know. <laughs> I'm wondering whether when we export, it's going to be the three dots. <laughs> I have a feeling with Sometimes in Matrix, City uh, fucks up. By the way, Ravi Rands, fantastic name. <laughs> Ravi Rands is going to be a drop-ranked show. Yes. I like Alan. Too easy. Well, Ravi and Max, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure and we will keep in touch. Thank you for having us on. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, well, let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.